0: Before I introduce today's discussion, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. This Death by Ignorance project is very important to me. I worry about the things we talk about on this show, and if I can help even a single one of you to better understand the complicated world we share, then all the work that goes into this podcast will have been worth it. If what you hear resonates with you, or if it just makes you mad, pass it on to a friend. The more we talk about these issues, the better our chances. Death by Ignorance, Episode 10, Homeopathy. Talking about homeopathy makes me angry, and it makes me sad. Angry because it's a shameless scam being perpetrated on a public that doesn't know any better by men and women who damned well should know better and under the protection of an anti-science, woo-loving government. It makes me sad because I need to tell you about Francesco Bonifazzi. Francesco was a healthy seven-year-old boy, the son of Marco and Marie Bonifazzi, living in the town of Carli in central Italy. One morning, two years ago, Francesco awoke with fever, earache, and symptoms of an upper airway infection. For reasons that weren't made clear, Marco and Marie chose to take the little boy to see Massimiliano Macozzi, a local homeopath instead of having him evaluated and treated by his usual pediatrician. Makozi gave the boy a homeopathic remedy, and congratulating Marco and Marie for showing excellent judgment by avoiding the use of antibiotics and thus saving their lovely boy from the certain deafness and liver damage that follows antibiotic therapy, he sent him home. After two weeks of progressive misery and unimaginable suffering for poor Francesco, Marco and Marie finally took him to the hospital when he lapsed into unconsciousness. He was still alive, but barely, and died shortly after being admitted. He died of a brain abscess and meningitis. All the result of his untreated ear infection an ear infection that would almost certainly have been successfully treated by a course of normal oral antibiotics. The parents were found guilty of manslaughter and were sentenced to three months in prison with the penalty suspended. The homeopath goes on trial this month. As the father of three wonderful children myself, this story breaks my heart. All three of my kids had several ear infections apiece growing up. It was hard to watch them suffer like that, and they were getting the very best care available, managed by one of my friends and colleagues, a top-notch pediatric otolaryngologist. Several years back, my son needed an emergency intervention and strong antibiotics after he ruptured his eardrum and developed a very serious inner ear infection. This is exactly the kind of infection that untreated can cause a brain abscess. And all this happened while we were visiting Italy and staying in a farmhouse, not a stone's throw from Francesco's village. Francesco's sad story is a wake-up call. We don't know for sure that his death could have been prevented by timely treatment with appropriate antibiotics, but the odds are good that it would have. We need to examine the root causes leading to the death of a healthy Italian boy who had an earache. What exactly is homeopathy, and why didn't it save Francesco's young life? What does the evidence tell us about homeopathy? Who else might be in danger, and what can we do about it? To answer the first question, what is homeopathy, let's go to the source. According to the American Institute of Homeopathy, which defines itself as the voice of the homeopathic medical profession, and I quote, homeopathy is the practice of medicine that embraces a holistic, natural approach to the treatment of the sick. And it operates under three principles. The first principle is let like cures like. Similia similibus currentor, an idea attributed to Hippocrates but fully developed by a German physician named Samuel Hanneman in 1796. Hanneman, discouraged by the brutal and largely ineffective medicine of his day, dreamt up an entirely new way to treat patients that was deeply rooted in this idea of likes curing likes. He conducted some tests on himself, which he called provings in the language of homeopathy, and also on healthy volunteers called provers. In these tests, he challenged volunteers with various mostly noxious substances. And when the provers became ill, Hahnemann would use their symptoms to develop a homeopathic picture of the substance. According to the Institute, 2,000 substances have now been tested and homeopathic pictures have been catalogued for each. The homeopathic practitioner treats patients by making a detailed assessment of the complaints, along with the physical, psychological, and emotional characteristics of the patient. The homeopath then decides on which drug picture or materia medica most closely matches the patient's characteristic totality, whatever that is, then the prescription called the simillimum is prepared and given to the patient in order to stimulate healing. The second principle is known as the minimum dose principle. According to this principle, the chemical substance in the remedy is diluted several times, and with each dilution, The mixture is shaken or tapped on a firm surface. The tapping is called succussion, and the whole process is known as potentization. According to the Institute, the higher the dilution when produced in this way, the higher the potency of the treatment. Hence the second principle, the lower the dose, the more potent the remedy, and the fewer side effects. The Institute goes on to state, and I quote, homeopathy has an enviable centuries-old history of safety in the use of its potentized oral medicines among patients of all ages. The third principle is that of the single remedy, which simply states that the remedy, when correctly matched to the characteristics of a given patient, can and should be used alone, to avoid the clutter and confusion of using more than one at a time. Every word of this description of homeopathy was written by, surprisingly, a real doctor, Sandra Chase, M.D., and every word of it is utter drivel, pure nonsense, and as good a definition of pseudoscience as you're ever likely to find. Let me paraphrase the good doctor's uh, description of homeopathy. Take a chemical that causes symptoms like the patient's, dilute it until there is quite literally none of the chemical remaining, whack it on the table a few times, and sell it to the patient as a prescription. And what is left in the remedy, to be clear, is water, nothing more, nothing less. So that's how its practitioners describe homeopathy. The scientific community has a slightly different take on it. We know that homeopathy is nothing but an elaborate fraud. The remedies are completely ineffective, and every large-scale study has confirmed over and over again that these remedies are no more effective than a placebo. Homeopathy cannot cure any illness or ailment. Virtually every claim that homeopathy makes about the human body, the nature of illness, drugs, fluids and physics is wrong. 200 years of scientific advancement has systematically dismantled each and every claim that homeopathy has made. And this leaves us with several important questions that need to be answered. So let's look at a few of them now. Are any of homeopathy's claims plausible? No, they aren't. And we can't talk about homeopathy without shining a bright light on just how implausible its claims actually are. Let's start with a closer look at this whole dilution thing. First, Let's cover the terminology. Next time you're at CVS drugstore, pick up one of the homeopathic remedies that they're touting. And by the way, you won't find them on the aisle with the magic wands and the crystal balls. They're right there on the shelves, mixed in with all the real medicines. We'll talk more about this in a minute. When you look at the label, you'll see some odd markings. And uh, this is what they mean. The Roman numeral for 10, a capital X, is used to denote dilutions from 1 to 10. So a 1x dilution is one part of the substance in 10 parts of the diluent, usually water or alcohol. A 3x is one part in a thousand, and an 8x is one part in a hundred million. The Roman numeral for 100, which is C, is used to denote a scale that's an order of magnitude higher than the X scale. So 1c is one part in a hundred and 3c is one part in a million. But you won't see many 1x cures. You'll probably be looking at stuff with dilutions of 30x and higher. And this is where it starts to get just plain silly. A dilution of 30x, one of the common dilutions marketed these days, is a solution that's been diluted one followed by 30 zeros times. To put this in some kind of context, a 30x dilution is the same amount of dilution that you'd get by adding a single drop of your magic chemical to a bucket 50 times the size of the entire planet Earth. And this is why it's virtually impossible that your 10cc bottle of homeopathic eardrops will contain even one single molecule of the active ingredient. There is one homeopathic cold remedy that's marketed at a dilution of 200c, That is a concentration equivalent to one molecule of the active ingredient in 1 times 100 to the two-hundredth power. (laughs) That is the number 1 followed by 400 zeros. If you were to count every last molecule in the observable universe, you would only get to 1 with 100 zeros before you are out of molecules to count. I hope you can see how irrational and utterly absurd this entire concept is. As an aside, though, this 200C cold medicine is made of pureed duck liver with a dash of duck heart for good measure. It's called acillococcinum, another made-up homeopathy word, And it gets diluted to the point where there's only one molecule in a bucket the size of 30 billion planet Earths. Interestingly, they don't tell us which of the thousands of different molecules, or maybe it's millions, that you'd find in a duck liver that's the important one. I guess that's a trade secret. And naturally, it does absolutely nothing for your cold. But it appears to do plenty for your homeopath's bank account. In 1996, according to U.S. News & World report, Ocelococcinum generated $20 million in sales. And that $20 million worth of magic liver water could have been made from a duck liver biopsy. You wouldn't even need the whole duck liver. P.T. Barnum nailed it. There really is a sucker born every minute. The implausibility of homeopathy isn't just a function of the dilution nonsense. It gets even crazier. Hahnemann and his acolytes had to come up with an explanation for how a solution with no molecules of the active ingredient could be having any effect whatsoever on complex biological systems. Presumably, and this is just my guess, they all got together for a homeo slumber party and dropped acid to come up with the explanation, which they called water memory. Yep, that's right. They decided that water remembers stuff. At least they didn't claim that the water memory idea came from translating the hieroglyphs on the magic golden tablets that Panaman dug up in his back garden. That would be just silly. What homeopathy still hasn't come up with is a plausible explanation for how it is that water knows what it's supposed to remember. You see, even the purest water in the cleanest bottle is going to contain Countless molecules of contamination after the first round of dilution. The air around us and every surface we touch is teeming with molecules of all imaginable types, like gas molecules from the air itself or pollutants or sloughed human skin cells. You name it, it's probably there. And any bottle of remedy will also contain a representative blend of the environmental contaminants. And don't forget to add in the molecules from any number of contaminants that are in the fluid or on the glass. One invisibly small piece of dust may contain millions of assorted organic and non-organic molecules. So the question becomes this. Which molecule is the one curing the homeopath's patient? The ones that aren't there or the ones that are there? You see my point? The homeopaths get around this by claiming that when they whack the tube on their magic leather-bound book, seriously, that's what they use, it imprints the water with a memory of the original chemical. And that's where the healing properties come from. Among many other things, homeopathy needs to explain how the whacking informs the water which molecule to remember. With several million other molecules floating around, as there will be, how does the water decide to remember that molecule? And what else might your magic water also be remembering? What if some of the water that you have in your bottle was once the sweat soaked into Arnold Schwarzenegger's support undergarment and that if it bumped into a volatile organic molecule while it was there? And what if no amount of succussion can budge those traumatic water memories? Homeopathy needs to explain to me why the cold got better when the remedy was really just water with PSD from its time in Arnie's undershorts. This is what happens when I think about claims that are as fundamentally idiotic as these. I go off on tangents. You can't have a serious scientific discussion about the fever dreams of a 200-year-old German pseudoscientist without granting the nonsense a legitimacy that it doesn't deserve and it hasn't earned. There are some ideas that are so nonsensical, so devoid of any plausible scientific foundation, that they should be discounted out of hand. We have better things to be doing with our brains, but we can't, can we? No matter how utterly implausible homeopathy claims are, the practice still represents a real and present danger to our society. It's a meal ticket for unethical opportunists and a nidus of widespread fraud and exploitation. It's causing needless pain and suffering wherever it's found. And the allure of its magical claims is proving quite irresistible to large segments of the world's population, particularly here in the U.S., where it resonates powerfully with the disillusioned and the marginalised and those feeling betrayed by the establishment and its intellectual elite. So the tenets of homeopathy lack plausibility. But it's just a harmless distraction, one that appeals to people who don't care about the science but are desperate to believe in something that offers hope and reassurance and an alternative to the soaring costs of established medical treatments, right? If homeopathic remedies consist of water and sugar pills, why am I claiming that they're dangerous? Well, you should ask Francesco about that. Oh, but you can't, can you? He's dead. And that's the number one reason that this practice has no place in enlightened civilization. When people fall for the unethical and illegal marketing disinformation spread by the multi-billion dollar homeopathy industry, when they take liquids and pills that promise to magically cure their ailments, guess what they're not doing? Right, they're not treating their illnesses. How, then, is homeopathy different from any other organized criminal enterprise? Good question, if I say so myself. The drugstore chain CVS, never a slouch when it comes to sniffing out other lucrative opportunities to fleece their customers, places homeopathic remedies on the same shelves as real medicines. They do it to take advantage of vulnerable patients, to sell them fake treatments, to make money from their ignorance. And this is a company that knows exactly what they're doing. Maybe there are a few homeopaths out there who are genuinely deluded, men and women who really believe that what they're doing is legitimate. But CBS doesn't get to play that card. The company employs real doctors, pharmacists, chemists, toxicologists, people who actually know the science and know that they're working for a company that puts profits ahead of the safety and well-being of their customers. Shame on them. CVS was sued for this practice in 2018 thanks to the non-profit Center for Inquiry. But homeopathy isn't just dangerous because it tricks patients into using ineffective treatments. It also is responsible for poisoning and killing some of them. The substances that homeopaths use to make their remedies include some really nasty stuff like arsenic, snake venom, Opium, feces, and snot. Figuring they'll be able to sell more Lachesis Muta remedy than they could if they labeled them snake venom pills, they give them all Latin sounding names Natrum Muriaticum, that's table salt, Smoke and Mirrors. The remedies maybe in liquid form, or they may consist of a sugar pill, usually lactose, onto which a drop of the remedy is allowed to evaporate. But that isn't true of all their potions. Some homeopathic remedies contain other ingredients. And one that you may recognize is the Zycam cold remedy. This was on the shelf for years. And this nasty fluid contains enough zinc acetate and zinc gluconate to permanently damage the olfactory nerves and cause unsuspecting patients to lose the sense of smell permanently. 340 patients settled with Matrix Initiatives, the makers of Zycam, for about $12 million in 2006. Other remedies are made using poisons like belladonna, arsenic, and poison ivy. And in theory, they're supposed to be diluted until none of the poison remains. But with no effective regulations on how the potions are prepared, that isn't always the case. And sometimes detectable quantities of these chemicals remain. Whether this is because the homeopath is incompetent as well as delusional, or if the intention was to poison the patient in the first place, is unclear. But the fact remains that some patients have suffered seizures and others have died after using such remedies. Over a period of six years, 400 children were poisoned by a teething remedy made by a company called Highlands. The kids developed fever and vomiting, with many going on to have full-blown seizures. Ten of these hapless babies died after being given this homeopathic treatment. The investigation is ongoing, but in 2010, the FDA looked into a rash of similar cases where patients presented with the same complaints after using this teething treatment. They found unsafe levels of belladonna, the cardiac glycoside derived from the deadly nightshade plant. The children had been poisoned by belladonna. If you've listened to any of my earlier rants on this channel, you may find it hard to believe that I really, really do try to be as balanced and fair as possible. It's seldom easy, and it's harder than ever in the case of homeopathy, but I will say this, the absolute numbers of severe adverse effects are actually pretty low. And I would sum up the whole question of safety by saying that homeopathy is rarely directly dangerous to humans. And that when it's functioning perfectly, it's completely harmless, though useless might be a better word. Homeopathy's real malignancy derives from its diversion of patients away from appropriate medical care. I think any reasonable person would agree that there are real dangers in this quackery. But how was the racket ever able to get a foothold in the public consciousness? How did it slither itself into a quasi-respectable position on the coattails of mainstream medicine? For an answer, we need to go back to the beginning. Homeopathy's early adoption in many parts of the world was most probably due to the fact that it killed fewer human beings than mainstream medicine did back in the day. Remember, there wasn't much that medicine could do to help a sick person back in 1800. This was the pre-antibiotic era, a dangerous time to get sick. I think we're prone to underestimate or at least fail to fully appreciate the magnificent progress that science and medicine have made over the last two centuries. And in so doing, we may forget just how brutal and dangerous healthcare was at the turn of the 19th century. Think about it. You get a nasty case of the plague or smallpox or consumption. And your doctor is all gung-ho for giving you a nice, vigorous bloodletting, or maybe a refreshing purge would raise your spirits. Maybe Doc would like to have you eat a handful of the new mercury pills he's just invented, or slap on a nice big handful of juicy leeches for good measure. Now you have the plague, very little blood in your veins, mercury poisoning, and a bunch of infected leech bites. In contrast, your neighbor, who got the plague from you when you borrowed his lawnmower, took one look at you and said, the hell with that, and he took off for the homeopath's office. He got a bottle of sugar pills. And even if he ended up dying of the plague, he probably enjoyed the sugar pills okay. You got no sugar and died of the plague, or more likely from the treatment. In 1800, choosing the sugar pills over the mainstream medical treatment was a pretty rational decision. In fact, during cholera outbreaks in the 19th century, the survival rate seen in homeopathic hospitals was often higher than that observed in traditional hospitals. The traditional treatments were killing people. The sugar pills weren't. So homeopathy caught on as far as being an alternative to the useless treatments being offered by the best medicine of the day. In these heady early days of homeopathy, it must have been seen as an exciting and promising alternative to the horrors of traditional medicine. So the first U.S. school of homeopathy opened its doors in 1835. And by 1900, there were 22 homeopathic colleges and some 15,000 homeopaths doing their newfangled flavor of sweet bugger all for sick but grateful Americans. Just like the pogo stick and jousting, it was a fad. And like all fads, it didn't last. Homeopathy was a placeholder until something better showed up. Even at the height of its popularity, it was getting a pretty regular bashing from the scientists of the day. Way back in 1843, Queen Victoria's physician, Sir John Forbes, was noted describing homeopathy as, and I quote, an outrage to human reason. Oliver Wendell Holmes published an essay in 1842 with the telling title Homeopathy and its Kindred Delusions. Tell us what you really think, Ollie. With modern medicine advancing by prodigious leaps and bounds, And as effective treatment became more widely available, the idea of trusting in the magic of homeopathy started to lose its appeal. The last exclusively homeopathic school shut its doors in 1920. Homeopathy was dead and buried where it belonged. And then along came Royal Copeland, a senator from New York, and as it happened, a practicing homeopath. This deluded sorcerer lost no time securing the future of homeopathy, which he did with gusto when he sponsored the 1938 Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act. This regulatory masterstroke granted homeopathy an undeserved legitimacy that it still enjoys to some extent today. The act recognized homeopathic remedies as drugs, and granted them all kinds of exemptions from the stringent regulations covering the manufacture, approval, and prescribing of real medications. The profound impact of his wording of the Act wasn't fully realized at the time, mainly because there were only 75 homeopaths practicing in the whole country in 1950. But by 1970, when homeopathy was in the midst of a major resurgence, Copeland's sneaky tactics began to pay off. The laws of the time, penned by Royal himself, allowed the homeopathic industry to flog every imaginable worthless curative with no requirement to prove efficacy and very little regulatory oversight. The resurgence of homeopathy that made this windfall possible was interesting in its own way. There are several theories for why this rebirth happened, but the only one that seems credible to me is that homeopathy was simply riding the tidal wave of New Age nonsense that was surging inward from both coasts to inundate the entire country with woo. It was a time of alternative everything, a revolution against tradition, and the perfect milieu in which a pseudoscience like homeopathy could gain some real traction. But whatever the cause of the renewed interest in alternatives to modern medicine, it was immediately appreciated as a major break, a golden goose, for unscrupulous opportunists like the major pharmacy chains who saw the almost limitless business potential in selling snake oil under the protections offered by Copeland's Drug Act of 30 years earlier. By 2007, over-the-counter homeopathic remedies were pulling in $2.7 billion a year in revenues. As most people, but not Gwyneth Paltrow, got tired of the New Age phenomenon, homeopathy was somehow able to hold its ground into the new century. One major factor in the ongoing popularity of homeopathy was the clever marketing efforts from its various stakeholders. The word homeopathy has quietly insinuated itself into the alternative medicine lexicon as a synonym for natural, healthy, and safe. It is in fact None of these. That was then and this is now. We are 200 years down the road from Hahnemann's hallucinations. We understand the power and importance of good science and rigorous research. We're past relying on vague notions and gut instincts in the practice of medicine. We demand solid evidence of safety and efficacy before we feel comfortable adding any new drugs to our formularies or performing novel surgical procedures in our operating rooms. Experiments must be well designed, meticulously conducted, and the results must be replicated by other investigators working independently. We understand the power of numbers and the relevance of statistics. So that puts us at a place in time where the claims of homeopathy can be thoroughly vetted, rigorously tested, and if true, these claims can be validated once and for all, right? No, not so fast, Tonto. The reliability of experimental evidence is predicated on a number of important factors. Research should be conducted by experts with a sound understanding of research principles and a strong foundation in the relevant underlying science. Their work must be meticulously documented, effectively controlled, and in many cases carefully blinded. Their work must be reproducible by independent researchers. The work must be subjected to thorough statistical analyses before the significance of any results can be established or any conclusions drawn. And perhaps of greatest importance, the work must be reviewed by a panel of peers, also experts in the field and qualified researchers themselves, before any work can be published. As with any complex intellectual endeavor, the quality of research is often largely determined by the quality of the principal investigator. Unsurprisingly, then, there's plenty of bad research out there, and some of it's criminally bad, the totally fraudulent and self-serving rubbish produced by dishonest and amoral con man Andrew Vaccines Cause Autism Wakefield being a textbook example. Then there's the research that, while not demonstrably criminal, is of such poor quality that the conclusions drawn are basically meaningless. This is the category that the vast majority of homeopathic research appears to fall in. Without question, the bulk of homeopathic research is lazy, sloppy, incomplete, dishonest, and statistically insignificant. But the poor quality of the research is almost just a distraction. It certainly isn't the core issue. Once we get beyond, or if we get beyond, the poor study design and execution, we're confronted by a pair of fatal flaws, a double whammy. And they're this. Homeopathy is supernatural, and its basis is an article of faith. The first fatal flaw as it relates to homeopathic research is that it lacks any recognizable scientific basis. Without that, the research is meaningless. But let me explain what I mean. When two scientists talk about a physical system, any system, not just a biological one, they both take it as a given that the system that they are talking about is subject to all the conditions present in the current best approximation of what we call physical reality. If the system being discussed exists at a single locus on the surface of the Earth, say, it can be safely assumed to be subject to the gravitational force g, which is expressed as acceleration towards the Earth's core and given a value of approximately 9.8 meters per second squared. Even if gravity is irrelevant in this system, it's still there, and it's one of the building blocks of physical reality at that point. This is what I mean by a sound scientific basis. You can't arbitrarily change the gravitational force to 3 meters per second squared or 100 meters per second squared just so your results look better. And you can't add mysterious new parameters that lack a plausible basis in reality. And if you do, that invalid supposition will infect every subsequent data point. Granting water the ability to remember a molecule that it met at a cocktail party six months ago is just such an invalid supposition. It cannot be plausibly described or explained in the language of science. It has no basis in physical reality and is therefore, by definition, supernatural. One of the first things we need to do when designing a research protocol is to define our terms. We give values for constants and we define our variables and describe how they'll be measured and reported. One critical variable in homeopathy is the concentration or potency of the active ingredient. We can define such variables any way we want, so long as another researcher can accurately replicate the conditions of the experiment. There's nothing in the purported supernatural properties of a homeopathic remedy that can be quantified, measured, or defined in any way that is verifiable by another researcher. And if that variable cannot be measured and reported, Any data that's derived from that variable is as meaningless as the variable itself. Which leads me to the second, if related, fatal flaw and the core reason why homeopathic research has no place in science. Homeopaths have their own language or set of pseudoscientific fundamentals, if you will. To make sense of the language, you have to believe in certain physical properties that are implausible in any known scientific context. The only people that accept these claims as having some mysterious fundamental meaning are other homeopaths. They've developed their own version of physical reality, a version that requires its proponents to accept as real Certain properties that are inconceivable in the physical world as it's understood by science today. This is a politically sensitive way of describing homeopathic researchers. What I really should say is that they're an inbred cult of woo merchants and that they use a magic decoder ring called water memory to prove facts that are demonstrably false. If all this has a vaguely familiar ring to it, it's because it's also a passable definition of religious faith. I believe that this understanding of homeopathic researchers as shamans, true believers, or religious fundamentalists is more useful and far more compelling than seeing them as legitimate scientists who just have one odd belief. They are not scientists, but they do have faith, You see, science requires evidence before it can refine the current approximation of physical reality. Homeopathy does not. Homeopaths wear the trappings of science as part of their disguise, and they do it to create the illusion of respectability. Don't fall for it. You can see under the bright white coat every time they try to square the circle by throwing out any inconvenient tenets of physical reality, the ones that stand between them and their mystical powers, or when they invent entirely new ones from whole cloth. Homeopathy is a sham, and it's a con. It's nothing more than quasi-scientific, new-age religion. When science engages with homeopathy, homeopathy wins. Faith to the true believer trumps everything. When science makes serious efforts to test the claims of homeopathy, it's already taken the bait. It's like setting up an experiment to measure the concentration of hemoglobin A1c in a cup of post-transubstantiation communion wine. Homeopathic research is an oxymoron, a tired trope rolled out to convince the gullible of homeopathy's fancy legitimacy. When we look at homeopathy's research publications, and especially at its systematic reviews, with this conceptualization of homeopathy as a religion in the mind, the entire body of work begins to make a great deal more sense. Homeopathy is not trying to convince the scientific community of anything. They know that's not possible. For them, the research is like a necessary evil, a chore almost. It's a perfunctory maneuver undertaken for the sole purpose of demonstrating to potential adherents out in the public that they're offering a legitimate alternative to mainstream health care the people they're trying to impress could care less about the science. They're looking for something to believe in. The very fact that legitimate scientists are debating them makes their crazy claims appear more legitimate. So when I go back and read the evidence of homeopathy, these books and papers are all vaguely desperate and pathetically unscientific and Most demonstrate a complete lack of intellectual honesty. For a typical example of homeopathic apologetics, look no further than the British Homeopathic Association's publication, The Evidence of Homeopathy. I've linked it in the show notes. This is fairly typical of how homeopathy true believers interpret the information that's out there. It's a muddle of confusion, misdirection, wishful thinking, and outright lies. But like all good propaganda, there are a few real facts in the mix. It's difficult to read this kind of material and get a handle on where the writer is coming from. I suspect a significant ingredient in this kind of writing is an honest lack of knowledge. The author may not understand how clinical search is actually conducted, may lack the experience or training to be able to correctly interpret data, tend to confuse correlation with causation. And the most extreme cases, they might just not grasp the scientific process at all. And that's a charitable assessment. It's equally plausible, I suppose, that they may have a pretty good understanding of how research is conducted but choose to overlook data and conclusions that don't fit with their beliefs or change data to show desired conclusions. These behaviors are the hallmarks of intellectual dishonesty and the stock in trade of today's swelling ranks of anti-scientific zealots. In a minute, we'll walk through the scientific consensus on homeopathy and talk about what the evidence actually shows. But first, let's consider what homeopathy thinks it says. The British Homeopathy Association opens their summary of the evidence with a real clangor, telling us that, and I quote, there is a growing body of published research in good quality peer-reviewed journals showing that homeopathy has a positive effect. No, there isn't. No, there aren't. And no, it doesn't. Not off to a great start, British Homeopathy Association. They claim that homeopathic research is in its infancy and that the evidence so far shows that more research is needed. They blame this on a lack of funding. I'm unclear what they mean by infancy. There's been a ton of research conducted over the years, certainly enough to draw some very interesting conclusions. The second part, that the evidence so far shows that more research is needed, I think that the evidence collected to date is more than enough to conclude that any further research is a complete waste of money, which incidentally is what a growing number of national research funding organizations and government health leaders have already concluded, hence the lack of funding. The author claims that 44% of randomized controlled trials have shown positive results and that 5% had negative results and 47% were inconclusive. The summary of the evidence statement cleverly compares their efficacy results to those shown in a large group of mainstream medical research studies. Making a statement like this implies that they're comparing apples to apples and that both groups of studies were equally rigorous and statistically significant. And this is where homeopathy's house of cards falls apart. The vast majority of the referenced studies are so poorly designed with so many deviations from accepted research practices and with such small groups of study patients that they're practically useless. In other words, the systematic reviews that purportedly evaluate the legitimacy of a body of homeopathic research are so badly flawed as to be meaningless. I encourage you to take a closer look into as many of the studies included in the systematic review that your patients will allow. I've read many of these studies over the years and reread a random sample of fifteen to twenty in preparing for this episode. I found two studies that were acceptable in terms of sample size methodology and statistical analysis, but both of these studies were inconclusive. They were using systematic reviews as smoke screens in the hopes that a reader will blindly accept the groundless assertion that the source studies themselves are legitimate, which in the vast majority of cases they simply aren't. I'd also note that every one of the six conditions that homeopathy claims to have incontrovertible evidence for efficacy are conditions that have either highly variable subjective endpoints or they're conditions that usually get better all on their own. So when your positive outcome consists of a patient who states that they feel better after treatment, It leaves so many opportunities to manipulate the data that the studies become essentially meaningless. What is a positive outcome? No more pain, some less pain, 10% improvement, 1% improvement? We avoid designing studies that rely purely on subjective outcome data for this very reason. Well-designed studies choose objective measures like evidence of healing on an x-ray, or a drop in blood markers for disease activity, even an indirect measure like when the patient returns to work. The homeopathy research community is quick to point out that by its very nature, homeopathy doesn't work like medical treatment, and the research methods used in medicine don't work for homeopathy. This also is utter rubbish. The treatment you use is either going to have a measurable, curative effect on the ill patient, or it isn't. Homeopathic research, and I use the words lightly, is a bizarre mix of cherry picking, motivated reasoning, obfuscation, and just outright deceit. To the limited extent that these studies can be interpreted meaningfully, the efficacy of homeopathy is on a par with using a placebo. And none of this is meant to imply that the placebo effect is not a very powerful force and useful in clinical medicine. I've used it myself in carefully selected patients for whom the clinical evidence suggests it as the safest alternative to more aggressive or invasive treatment. And it works remarkably well in the right patients. But treating with a placebo in this setting is very different from giving patients nothing when treatments exist that are indicated, efficacious, and safe. Before we leave the research and move on, we should touch on one of the objections to this line of thinking that we can anticipate from homeo advocates. Science works with unknowns all the time. Well, yes, it does. There's a lot that science doesn't know or hasn't found. Science is a process that unfolds over time. Discoveries are built on top of discoveries, and if it's necessary to go back and modify some earlier belief when new information is available, then science is designed to do that. Science can tell us that something must exist, like the Higgs boson, but it may take ages to find it. But its existence was accurately theorized because of the observable effects that it has on the current understanding of physical reality. Those effects are the scientific basis that provides the context for its existence, completely opposite to the claims made for water memory. But let me hasten to add that this doesn't mean, and I'm not saying, that there is no such thing as water memory. There may in fact be. But until we have instruments capable of measuring the effects of this phenomenon on the system, it's quite meaningless to postulate that it's even there. The one other thing, if if science could actually confirm that homeopathic remedies were exerting a plausible effect on biological systems, it wouldn't make up some new scientifically implausible property of the physical world to explain it. Science would look at those parts of the system that are actually known to exist, like contaminant molecules, for example. The unknowns of homeopathy, like water memory, can't rationally be assumed to exist because they have no observable interaction with the environment, and they have no observable effect on the system. The only evidence that homeopathy can offer for the reality of water memory are the positive results from their clinical research. Results that have yet to be demonstrated. If homeopathic research were a serious endeavor and not just a marketing ploy, the work would focus solely on finding a plausible explanation for the supernatural assumptions of water memory and its mechanism of action in biological systems. So let me sum up for you why homeopathy is at best a pseudoscience and why every claim made by homeopathic research can be discarded out of hand. The remedies that are being tested are of unknown composition. They contain no active ingredient but countless contaminant molecules. None of their research provides a shred of credible information about the actual composition of the remedy. In order to draw any conclusions whatsoever about the efficacy of the remedy, homeopathy must first offer a credible scientific explanation, one that's consistent with the accumulated knowledge of chemistry, biology, and physics for the proposed mechanism by which a given potion exerts action on a biological system. They also need to provide an equally rigorous basis for their claim that the contaminants are not what's responsible for any observed activity. They don't do any of this. The research that has been done boils down to this. They give a patient water or lactose that contains who knows what, and at some later point they ask the patient if their cold improved. If the patient got better, as virtually all patients will without any treatment, they consider this as a positive result. And that proves the efficacy of homeopathy. And this, by the way, is very similar to the methodology used by Christians to prove the power of prayer, including the fact that they just throw out any inconvenient data like Auntie Arabella dying of dropsy in the middle of the vigil. So, what do real scientists find when they look into the homeopathic research? When scientists conduct a rigorous meta-analysis of the available data, most of the research has to be discarded because of the tiny sample sizes, the poor controls, and a host of other procedural research errors. And what's left fails to show any statistically significant evidence of efficacy. In the very few experiments that appear to demonstrate a relationship between the practice and the outcomes, the results haven't been successfully replicated by other investigators. In 1996, the Homeopathic Medicine Research Group, a European study group that included homeopathic researchers, looked at all the published and unpublished homeopathy trials to that date. There were 184 such reports, but of the 184, only 17 were properly conducted and reported. Of these studies, several did show a greater-than-placebo effect, but in every case, the sample size, the number of patients, that is, was too small to be statistically significant. So, thanks to the work of this group, including the homeopaths on the team, we're left to conclude that the homeopathy research prior to 1996 is useless, and there's no homeopathic treatment that has been proven effective. And this hasn't changed in the intervening years. The studies are still rubbish, the research quality is atrocious, the conclusions are illegitimate, and the seven reviews that have been conducted by homeopathy researchers are a half-hearted attempt to make a silk purse from a desiccated duck's liver. I'm going to charitably assume that the majority of homeopaths are good-hearted morons, and they believe that what they're doing is good. But that's not true across the board. There are some really dangerous shysters out there too, eager to exploit the gullible, companies that have over the years sold homeopathic remedies that claim to treat viral diseases like herpes and HIV, coronary heart disease, hypercholesterolemia, cancer, allergies, and obesity. As soon as one of these crooked outfits is put on notice, another one just pops up. As of today, there is no credible evidence that homeopathy does anything at all other than what we could anticipate from using a placebo. And maybe surprisingly, the FDA here in the US agrees with that. As of today, there's no credible evidence that homeopathy does anything at all other than what we could anticipate from using a placebo. And maybe surprisingly, the FDA here in the US agrees with that. As of today, there's not a single homeopathic remedy that the FDA has found to be safe and effective for the intended purpose. And this brings us to our penultimate question. Why the hell is the FDA doing nothing to shut down this dangerous practice? Well, the FDA claims to have higher priorities. And while this may be true, it's a lousy excuse. Certainly in today's political climate, a definitive congressional action on anything whatsoever seems unlikely. And of course, in today's Trumplandia, regulatory oversight is inversely proportional to the amount of cash that you can tuck into Mitch McConnell's shell. We're living in a time where incontrovertible scientific evidence is really quite irrelevant to our lawmakers. But before I go into a rant, there's a glimmer of hope on the horizon. Well, maybe not an actual glimmer, something less than that, maybe a wink. But in 2015, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and the Food and Drug Administration went on a date to chat about the whole homeopathy thing. Over there, blooming onion and sangria the FTC pointed out an important inconsistency in the FDA's homeopathic compliance policy. They pointed out that the FDA does not require proof of effectiveness for homeopathic remedies. The FTC, on the other hand, requires that advertising must be truthful and based on reliable scientific evidence. So with their 6-ounce sirloins cooling untouched on their plates, The FDA's hopes for a late-night cuddle were fading fast. The FTC skipped the praline cheesecake and, pretending to get an important text from her mum, grabbed her purse and was gone. That was four years ago. There was a call for public comments at the time, and I know for a fact that they got at least one. In retrospect, I might have been a little over-aggressive, belligerent even, in my tone and my choice of words. I never heard back from either the FTC or the FDA. But the disparity is still out there. One regulatory body has a policy that is inconsistent with those of the other. And bureaucracies don't like inconsistencies. And that's where my wink of hope lies. The day that the FDA grows a pair and gets its policy aligned with the FTC is the day that homeopathy dies, in theory at least. Either way, it can't hurt to keep the pressure on the FDA. And we could all follow in the footsteps of Dr. Stephen Barrett, a brilliant and outspoken advocate for consumer protection and scientific skepticism. His website is linked in the notes. And take the time to let our FDA know that we're watching and that we're waiting for them to do the responsible thing. And if you get discouraged thinking that our voices won't make any difference, take some inspiration from the likes of Mike Marshall, better known as Marsh, of the Moseyside Skeptic Society in the UK. He and his organization have worked some bona fide miracles, okay, well, not real miracles, of course, in dragging practices like homeopathy out into the light of day. He's living proof that our individual efforts do have an impact and can make a difference. I'll put a link to his organization in the notes also. So what can we ordinary mortals do to lessen the damage caused by the cult of homeopathy here in the U.S.? You can reach out to your representative or congressperson and share your concerns with them. You can prepare for the 2020 election by finding out what positions the candidates hold on this issue, and you can shoot off a letter to the FDA. I'll put that address in the show notes also. I don't know if any of these steps will have much of an impact, honestly, but what could be effective is getting the word out to your friends and family, especially if any of them are into acupuncture or use a chiropractor, both of which, by the way, will be getting their own episodes in the very, very near future. Tell your people what you've learned, and you can even get them to listen to this podcast as long as you tell them not to leave mean comments or death threats. And listen to their side of the story. Find out why they believe this stuff. And expect a ton of pushback. Remember that the more irrational a person's firmly held belief, the more desperately they're going to cling to it. At worst, you may get an earful from Uncle Fester, but at best you could save him from a fate like Francesco's. I want to close today with a quote from an unknown homeopathy advocate. He sent the following message to Dr. Steve Barrett in response to a very well researched article critical of homeopathy, and that Dr. Barrett has published and that is linked in these show notes. I was going to use one of my own, but I actually couldn't find one that didn't have an explicit death threat or use mostly foul language, so I'm having to rely on one of Steve's. Dr. Barrett notes that uh, this review was from a Californian who runs seminars teaching people how to reduce stress by finding their natural breathing pattern. Sound reasonable? He writes, I am very open-minded. I would use drugs, surgery, whatever it takes, but I feel homeopathy has value and the word fake is counterproductive and judgmental. I feel you've not researched the many scholars around the globe that are researching the quantum biological perspective. A few key biophysicists are gaining knowledge that there are subatomic fields that interpenetrate and structure the molecular level. These fields can directly relate to how homeopathy works. You do not need any molecules of the substance in the remedy to affect these underlying fields. A subatomic wave field that is carried by the water or sugar in the remedy is interacting with the subatomic fields underlying the physical matter of the patient. The problem is our limited technology can only measure a limited band of the energy spectrum. And he closes in all caps, We are not that advanced as a civilization. Just watch the news. Oh boy, it's going to be an uphill battle. Good day.